This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love the story of the um, election in Germany, where each party had to get more than 5% of the vote to get a seat in the parliament. And the Green Party thought they had their 5%. It was reported they got 5.0%. And they're like, yes, we get a seat. But it turns out it was rounded to, you know, one decimal place. And they actually got 4.97%, which was not enough to get a seat. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Helen Glenny, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. Throughout history, engineers have watched their bridges disappear into the waters below, all because of tiny changes in design unexpectedly affecting their structural integrity. Elsewhere, generals have stood aghast as missile defences miss their target by a country mile thanks to rounding errors, and bankers have seen their profits tumble as a result of spreadsheet quirks. Maths can get a bad rep, especially when even the slightest miscalculation can lead to catastrophe. In his new book, Humble Pie, A Comedy of Maths Errors, Stand-up comedian and general maths whiz Matt Parker digs out his calculator to work out why so many disasters can arise from simple mistakes, often with deadly consequences. In this week's Science Focus podcast, he speaks to online editor Alexander McNamara about some of history's most incredible maths mistakes and how they were made. He also explains the joy of calculators and how, despite many teachers' best efforts to crack a joke, maths can actually be funny. So you're you are both a, a stand-up comedian and a mathematician. Um, correct, correct. 
So I was under the impression, given the you know dabblings of maths that I've had up until about university, is that maths has never been particularly funny. Um, is there something that I'm getting wrong about that? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good point. So, um, I mean, maths teacher humour is kind of its own unique brand of comedy, and that's what most people come across when they're at school. Maths teachers trying to be hilarious, but mm. I um I happily came at it from. Uh, you know, the direction where I was really doing stand-up and then I was just like, hey, I wonder how much how much maths I can fit in this while still, you know, successfully entertaining an audience. Otherwise, I don't get paid, right? So I had to keep it entertaining, but it was my own mission to put some maths in there. And was, was that an easy fit? You know, it was easier than I expected. Um, partly because, I mean, one of the golden rules of stand-up is um, talk about something that you care about. Because, you know, it's one thing just to do, you know, standard jokes and don't get me wrong, there's some great like one-liner comedians out there. But a good way to connect with an audience is to be, you know, talking about something that, that you personally care about. And for me, that was maths. But I also realized that an audience will go a long time without noticing they're not laughing if they're still being uh, entertained or, or, or engaged or they're still interested. And so obviously you still got to tell jokes occasionally, but... I re- I've discovered I could go quite a while and they'd be interested in what I'm doing, uh, I- even though it wasn't like traditional set-up punchline comedy. And then that's the the, the inherent uh, uh, interest there is things about mathematics. Yeah, so I would, I mean, I tested the water by, I started solving a Rubik's Cube on stage. And that, cause that, that like an easy, easy gateway because it was like, it was interesting, but it's also performance and um and so that that's when I was kind of toying around with, can I do something that's not strictly, you know, jokes, but it's still entertaining and is a bit more mathsy. And that gradually moved into doing more and more maths. I have to admit, when I started doing actual like maths content, that's when I was doing my own shows or doing specifically nerdy shows. So when I was booked as a nerdy comedian or um, like we do a thing called Festival of Spoken Nerds and I've got a night in London called an evening of unnecessary detail. And these are like explicitly nerdy gigs. Then you still got to, you know, make them entertaining, but you've got a lot, you know, more range to actually try and communicate some actual mass content that you don't get if you're just a comedian booked at a, you know, generic comedy club. And do you find that your audiences actually want to come for both comedy and to be, uh, you know, learn some, some, some sums? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they get upset if they don't, you don't get sufficient amounts of both. So if anything, I've made it harder. Um, but, you know, there's a great community of, you know, uh, comedians who love science and scientists who love um, comedy that, particularly when I'm organizing a variety night, there's loads of great people I can get involved. And for me, I would miss either half. So, so you know, the comedy stuff, it tends to be, you know, more comedy, but with enough maths in there to keep me entertained. And then also when I'm doing like a maths talk, like if I'm, you know, going to a university somewhere to speak about maths or, or mass communication, then I put in enough comedy to keep me entertained. So, you know, the balance shifts depending on the audience, but there's always a bit of both. I guess one of the things that our, that our listeners really enjoy and, and readers of the magazine, they, they do like that sort of uh, interesting science and technology and everything, but also they like to be entertained and engaged. Are there any sort of areas that you've noticed in the world that when, when you're sort of melding both the science and the comedy together, that there's stuff that just isn't funny? That's, well, yeah, that's a good point. So, um, I mean, actually, yeah, two, two, two things. Occasionally, 
and this is to be expected, something is just too either esoteric or involved or detailed to get across in a way that's funny, right? Because you can get enough momentum with funny to get you through a few details and things. But something like, there's a number called Graham's number, and it's famously like the biggest number that was ever uh, constructively used in a maths proof, and it's just mind-bogglingly big. And early on, I was like, you know what? I'll do a hilarious routine about the biggest number ever used. And I just never, I could never crack it. Um, but then that's when things like um, writing articles or doing particularly books, actually, I always want to do the Riemann hypothesis on stage. But there's so – like to do it in a meaningful fashion and in a way that's different to what other people have done, which is more of like a highlights tour, I could never really think of a way to do it on stage. But then when I was writing a, a book a couple of years ago, I was like, ah, perfect. This is the long-form situation where I can do all the setup and the required background in a way that's still entertaining, but in a book form, you know, it people can, you know, put the book down, go away. It's a very different um, process. But the other, the other problem I've had now, which I hadn't run into before is, so the book that's just come out, is called Humble Pie, uh, a comedy of maths errors. And there's the problem. It was a comedy of maths errors. And that's what my publisher signed off on <laughs> a funny story about, you know, funny book about maths goes wrong. Trouble is, a lot of maths is used in engineering and medicine and all these places. And when it goes wrong, a bunch of people die. And I couldn't have like every – like if I wasn't careful, every second story in the book would just be, and then everybody died. And so I had to, I had to you know, um, ration the, the stories where everyone dies. Like I deliberately only put in aviation stories where nobody dies, but there's still – like an engineering story about a bridge collapse where people died. There's evacuation of a theater several times, actually, where everyone dies because of the geometry of how the doors and the exits um, moved and were arranged. And then the medical stuff, you know, because of a programming error, someone died from an overdose on a um, radiation um, machine. And occasionally I've tried to, because I think it's important to, you know, bear in mind the severity of what happens when maths is being used in these life critical situations. I've tried to put them in a, a, a comedy talk about maths, but I've never found a way to successfully include a story where a bunch of, you know, people very sadly died because of an error and it just changes the mood so much. I don't, I'm yet to crack how to do that successfully and appropriately um, these are real people, right? In in a show where people have, you know, paid f to be entertained, and it, it can be done because I know people talk about some very serious and important topics in comedy. That's one of the great things about stand up. You know, you can do whatever you want as long as the audience enjoy it. I'm yet to crack away for the audience to be able to appreciate it, and then go then then return to enjoying the the funnier stories no there's definitely one of the things uh, so, uh about the book is that you you know i was always under the impression that when i was going i said the whole point of maths is that ultimately you get to the right answer um it's usually that equal sign is the giveaway there on that one um but um in in the book obviously there are these things where these these tiny little uh things that we just miss out for instance the the the, the section about rounding errors which has got quite a quite something how we don't quite realize quite how significant an effect that can have phenomenal what a slight you know bit of rounding can do so i love the story of the um election in germany where each party had to get more than five percent of the vote to get a seat in the parliament and the green party thought they had 
their 5%. I think this was about 1992. Don't, uh, people can look it up. And um, they, it was reported they got 5.0%. And they're like, yes, we get a seat. But it turns out it was rounded to, you know, one decimal place. And they actually got 4.97%, which was not enough to get a seat. And so the result changed from them having a seat to not having a seat when people realized that th what they were going on initially was a rounded figure and the, the more precise figure actually um, was on the other side of the threshold. And is that one of the reasons why we, you know, is that one of the reasons why we make so maths mistakes that, that, that are so, that happen so frequently? Um, or is there, are there other things about it that we just, we just get wrong? It's a good point because what a lot of people had the impression that you that you've come away with, which is which is what you get from doing maths at school, is that it's all about getting the correct answer. And you know, maths is kind of unique. I mean, some science is quite close to this, to be fair, where there is def there's a definite right answer, like in maths. And people find this funny when I'm doing my maths degree, and when I finished an exam and my mates had met me afterwards, they were amazed. That everyone everyone comes out of the maths exam and they're they're discussing, oh, what was the answer for this one? Oh, you got that one right. I got that one wrong. And immediately we would know if we were right or wrong because it's right or it's wrong. Whereas they're like, you know, philosophy and English students who are like, I don't know, I wrote a bunch of words and someone's now going to decide, you know, going to assign a percentage to that. And that's very, very different. And so people kind of think maths is all about the right answer, which it is when you're doing tests. However, you know, actually doing maths is about getting the wrong answer over and over again and trying to be a bit, bit less wrong. And exploring and learning maths is just is you know a long journey of getting it wrong because as, as as you said I mean it's not just that you know things like rounding can trip us up it's the fact that humans aren't very good at mathematics like just our brains our brains are very good at learning maths just make that very clear but they're very bad at doing it just intuitively we have to teach our brain we've got to train it to do the maths in the first place and so we're kind of trying to do a subject with equipment that's not quite up to up to the task but the benefit of that is is that if we do learn the maths it lets us go beyond our intuition like it, it's it's enabling you know the, the human brain to to do working out and to come to conclusions that it wouldn't be able to do naturally and is that why we had things like calculators and and advanced from everything from a calculator to an advanced computer to sort of get us that one step further i mean i'm very pro calculator i've gone you know as <laughs> a matter of public record I mean, I do calculator unboxing videos on YouTube, so I'm not really one to talk here. I think any, any, I mean, three million views can't be wrong. At that, well, they can actually. Um, so, um, you know, I'm all for as many aids as possible. So I love calculators. I love anything which can help with the maths, anything which takes away the more tedious bits that once you've got them, it's just slowing you down from getting to the interesting bits of you know, mathematics. But even bigger than that, I'm, I'm a big fan of because assuming humans are always going to make these mistakes, and yes, we can help with you know calculators and these things, but we can also have built into our various systems and organisations, you know, ways to stop the inevitable maths mistakes from becoming disasters. And there's this you know using maths to design logical systems to stop that from happening. So something like calculators, there have been there have been um, people who have died because of a drug overdose because the people like um so some drugs that are administered by an automatic pump the people who are programming the pump used a calculator or did some working out on a bit of paper and got it wrong and like and and administered the wrong rate of a drug and there have been um deaths as a result of this and what's interesting is 
when you look at the investigations into it or you look at the people doing research to try and stop it, they refer to the medical staff as using a general purpose calculator. And I, when I first saw that in one of these medical reports, because I read a lot of reports for this book, I had never come across the phrase general purpose calculator. I was like, man, I know, you know, I consider myself, you know, a bit of a, you know, an appreciator of calculators, but I'd never come across general purpose calculator. And then they made the point that if it was a, like, why not design a specialty calculator for hospitals where it knows some of the context of the calculation you're doing? So, like I say, it might know what drug or what type of drug or uh, all these different ways, which are, which are easy to build into a calculator on an iPad, you know, like some kind of, uh, you know, a tablet or something. And then it wouldn't just blindly give you back whatever number happens to match the buttons that you mashed with your fingers. It would be able to intelligently say, no, this is right, this is wrong, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong. Even things like different calculators respond differently depending on if you enter two decimal points in a number. Which one, like one by, so one would be accident, one's on purpose, how it decides which one, if it even tells you. Most calculators just go, oh, well, must be the first one, and no error appears. So I think, yeah, we can definitely, you know, calculators are very useful, but we can do even better in some situations. So these are sort of contextual calculators in a way. Yeah, yeah. A, a contextual calculator that knows why you're doing the calculation and has a vested interest in flagging up any possible problems instead of just, you know, happily going with the flow. It's, um, it reminds me of one part in the book where you, you talk about how, uh, say, for Excel, for instance, has got, you know, it's a great spreadsheet and does good calculations yeah, and stuff, but uh, it makes errors in there that, you know, that are built into it. I was just wondering if you'd be able to explain what that error is and, and why it's happening. Yeah, so Excel, while wonderful, can do so many things wrong. And to be honest, we don't need any help getting spreadsheets wrong. The um, There's an organization called the European Spreadsheet Risk Interest Group, who I love. I've never been to their conference, but I really want to go. And they do research into risks from spreadsheet use. And what they've done is they have sampled whenever there's a big like release of spreadsheets into the public domain from within a company. So even if there's like a, you know, some kind of leak or often if there's um, court proceedings and they have to hand over all their stuff or for some reason it enters the public domain, they will then go through and analyze them all. And they have found that roughly 24% of all spreadsheets that contain some kind of formula or mathematical calculation contain a mathematical error, at least 24%. It's just it's terrifying. But on top of us using them badly, you're right, Excel has some problems built in. And I had actually, I had this problem um, just yesterday. I had a spreadsheet open. I was looking at sales of books from, um, uh, I have a website called Maskey. I'm not trying to plug this. It's a genuinely, I started this story without realizing it's going to come across like a plug. <laughs> we sell lots of books on Maskey uk for all your mass needs. And so I was um, sorting through the sales of the books for the week. And Excel converted the ISBNs, so the, 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 the number for each book, into an order of magnitude because they're so long. So instead of getting the ISBN being like 937, whatever, it was like 9.3 times 10 to the 12. I'm like, that's not helping. And so I'm, it's, it's, it sees a number. It doesn't realize it's actually like a product serial code. It's not a, not a genuine number. It does it to phone numbers all the time. Like a lot of phone numbers will 
be converted into scientific notation automatically in Excel. And if you're not careful, you you can lose some of that detail. And I mean, a phone number, I mean, it's not really a number, is it? Like my rule of thumb is if you ask someone for half of a number and they half it, like divide it by two, it's a number. If they give you the first lot of digits, it's not a number. So I said, well, like, what's half your phone number? People would give you the first half of the digits. And okay, so actually, you never do maths with it. It's not a number. And Excel is just, when people use it as a database, it's not it's not aware enough of the context, I guess. Yeah, I, I've found that with phone numbers, the fact that all phone numbers tend to start with zero, which immediately gets uh, deleted. Yep, that's gone. I had a credit card, which I don't have anymore. I can talk <laughs> about this. And the three digits on the back started with a zero and a lead zero. And so some websites, when it says enter in the three digits on the back, I'd enter them in. And if the website wasn't well coded or wasn't set up properly, it would then remove that zero and then complain it didn't match. It just <laughs> drove me up the wall. I had to get a new card. It's just insane. I guess these are the, the small little like maths errors and things that we just don't really notice or people just don't really think about that then come into our real world, as it were, that just sort of niggle away at us in a way. Yeah, it's just a lot of it's kind of fun because there's things that you never really spot, but then occasionally if it goes wrong, it can have big, um, big ramifications. So, I mean, you talk about spreadsheet um, abuse. Some people at, um, I think this is all public record, JP Morgan um, Chase, they had a series of spreadsheet problems um, within the last decade. And some of it was how they were using the spreadsheets and some was just actual calculation errors. And they were trying to calculate um, or at least keep track of their value at risk, which was for all the money they're investing, how much you know uh, risk are they facing? Because while it's hard to predict profits, it's a lot easier to predict risk. And so you can, you can keep tabs on that. And they ended up through a series of spreadsheet problems, including things like there was a calculation for value at risk where they were adding two cells instead of taking their average, like just stuff like that, we all do. And they lost six billion US dollars as a result of their miscalculation. It's just in, insane. And so these little mistakes that we all make all the time, occasionally in the wrong situation, they flare up and, and cause a major problem. Mm-hmm. Or six, you know, six <laughs> yeah. billion major problems. Six billion major problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah it puts my maths uh, issues into perspective and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's just it. We all make these mistakes, and I had to strike a careful balance in the book between everyone's bad at maths, it's fine to make mistakes, with sometimes we need to be, you know, we need to be aware that everyone's going to make mistakes and find ways to stop them before they become disasters. (laughs) So just moving on slightly, I just wanted to have a quick word with you because obviously this week is probably... (laughs) Sounds ominous. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) This week... This week's quite a big week, and I imagine uh, that mathematicians around the world, this is kind of a big week leading oh, yeah, up to this uh, is math- it. Mathematicians this is Christmas. This is it, the big Pi Day. Big Pi Day, yeah. What, Christmas um, much. What is Pi Day all about, as opposed to sound- sounding delicious? Oh, my goodness. And, you know, um, it's British Pie Week is around the same time as well, and I think they've just kind of, they're trying to get on, in, on, in on the excitement. So, so Pi, the mathematical number, everyone's favourite, 3.14159, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some countries in the world write their dates by the month and then the um, day within the month. So, so March 14 is written three, either slash or dot or something, one, four, and then the year. Although if you follow the official one and you have year first, you then have month and day. So it works in different formats and it's not quite as North American centric as 
um, some people like to complain about, although for me, any excuse to celebrate a mathematical constant. And so on, on the 14th of March, because the date can look like 3.14, mathematicians celebrate pi uh, all around the world. It's a big day. I, I, I personally, my tradition is I try and calculate pi a ridiculous way. That that's, uh, And every year I either do a long, tedious calculation by hand or I do some kind of physical experiment where the result um, gives pi. So previously, I've put like, you know, hundreds of pies in a giant circle and then counted how many pies are around and put pies across the diameter. I've um, done probability experiments where the answer is pi. This year, I had a balancing beam, like a six meter long beam balanced right in the center. And then I suspended masses from different distances along the beam. And because I knew this uh, this series, if you add all the square fractions together, equals something based on pi. And so I had the series done by masses on one side, and then by working out how much mass at a unit distance on the other side was required to balance it, I could then use that to get pi. And I got 3.12, which I was very, very proud of. Pretty so for hanging things on a beam, three point one two is pretty pretty pleasing. But I'm always keen if people have different pie day traditions or suggestions, uh, drop me a line. Is there something that uh, you know a relatively simple way that I would be able to uh, demonstrate pie in my own real world with things I might find in my house or desk? That's a good question. Yes, there is. So. Obviously, there's measuring a circle, right? The lazy way. So you could find a circle, measure around it, measure across it, divide the circumference by the diameter, you get pi, right? That's fine. Nice entry level. Next step up, you want to do something without circles. So it, the the period of a pendulum, the way you calculate that in physics, has a pi symbol in it. It's 2 pi times the square root of the uh, length of the string, or, or whatever your pendulum length is, divided by acceleration due to gravity. And this is great. No circles now. And I often flick through. I try and find physics equations with a pi in them. So what this means is if you can get a pi or any other object, but obviously you want to start with, you know, I'm just assuming you're going to use a pi for this. Because why? Why go halfway? <laughs> Plus you've got a you, meal at the end of it. Exactly. Then you can celebrate by eating it. There you go. Like, like all good bits of mass working out. So, like, yeah, like all good experiments, make sure you eat. No, don't do that. Right. So, um, if if you look at the equation for the period of, of a pendulum, and you set the length of your pendulum to be a quarter of the value of acceleration due to gravity, which so acceleration due to gravity is about nine point eight, nine point eight one, depending on where you are, and a quarter of that is two point four five. So, if you have two point four five meters length pendulum, it will take pi seconds to swing backwards and forwards. And so what you can do is then set it swinging and time its period and you'll calculate pi. And <laughs> so that, that's that's my favorite non-circle way to get pi. <laughs> I just need to dangle something 2.45 meters from the ceiling. Yeah. I did it once with we did the full 9.81 meters. Because then the period is two pi. And so just each pass, like from one side to the other is pi and then pi back for the full period. And so you need a lot more space for that. Mm. But you, you do, you, you get pi in, in fewer swings. I guess also that way you get rid of some of the rounding errors when you're multiplying it. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit harder. What we found was um, when we did the two, the nine point eight one before, we were um, ignoring the mass of the string and the rigging. We were just doing the mass uh, of the pie in terms of working out where the center of mass is to work out the effective length of the pendulum. But when we did the really long one, the the center of mass moved up quite a bit. It was no longer in the pie. And so that, that complicates things. I'm just giving literal, like, practical advice. I assume people are going to do this. Just at some point, you've got to remember the string and the rigging. The other thing you can do is if you've got very sensitive scales, you can uh, weigh a square of cardboard and then cut out a circle and then weigh the circle. And then you can use the two different masses to work out the ratio of the surface areas and that will give you pi based on the area of a circle which is quite nice sounds like a simpler way of doing it might give that one a go and say <laughs> most things are simpler <laughs> than hanging a pi from 10 meters of string do you think there are any other mathematical constants worthy of their own special day that's a good point so i celebrated thirds day um this year which <laughs> was on the third of january because again same with the date system in American style. The one over three, one forward slash three for third of January looks like a third. And it was a Thursday. So a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And so um, a mathematician in, in the US, like with, uh, James Prop, decided to declare that whenever the third of January is a Thursday, we'll call it Thirds Day. And so I celebrated by calculating a third. I mean, to be fair, on Pi Day, some schools have like a how many digits of pi can you memorize competition on Thursday? That's a lot less um, exciting, um, <laughs> but easier. It, it, it's more inclusive. Everyone can get involved, I guess. So, so I, I think there needs to be more um, rational uh, celebration <laughs> of mathematical constant days. That was Matt Parker explaining some of math's biggest mishaps. His new book, Humble Pie, is available now, and you can find him on Twitter and YouTube at StandUpMaths. So be sure to tweet him any math jokes, disastrous rounding errors, or novel uses you found for Pi. We'd love to hear them too, at Science Focus. In the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, the first featuring our brand new design, we explore the hidden power of the brain. We also take a look at the oldest galaxies in the universe, explain why charismatic leaders can be successful despite a lack of competence, and we introduce a new section called Reality Check. As always, there's much, much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.